should be inspiring because it was inspired by these words that I just read to you a moment ago from the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. These were inspired by the Spirit of God, written by John. Think about him a minute. Think back to the shores of the, the banks of the Jordan River down near Jericho when as a 16-year-old boy he heard John the Baptist, about 16, maybe 15. He and his brother James and a young friend named Andrew, Simon Peter's younger brother, had gone down there to hear John the Baptist. They'd left the fishing business in the hands of Simon, Andrew's older brother, and Mr. Zebedee, James and John's father. They were all in the fishing business together. These young men, about 15, 16, 17 years of age, had heard about John the Baptist, this wilderness preacher. He was getting everybody's attention, and they wanted to hear him. So they made a trip. And they heard John the Baptist make that profound announcement, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And these young fellows walked up to Jesus, and uh, they wanted to talk to him, and they didn't know exactly how to start the conversation rolling. And so they, they said, uh, asked him a question. Where do you live? And what if Jesus had told them? I mean, what if he had told them who he really was at that moment? They would have been stunned and shattered. He looked at them and said, uh, Why don't you come and see? Let's talk about it. And John, writing about it, said it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon one day. And what, to all outward appearances, was just a casual meeting and a conversation transformed their lives and through them the world. Never underestimate the power and the Spirit of God to take a casual occurrence like church on Sunday night and turn it into a miracle in our lives. John started following Jesus at that point. Jesus began his ministry and John, one of his closest friends and one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, with him in significant moments. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he obviously you had the feeling was a very warm kind of personality, loving kind of person. He was with Jesus, the only one of the disciples who didn't forsake him the night that Jesus was betrayed by all of the others and they fled. John went with him. Peter was there for a while and denied him. John stayed. John was the only disciple that showed up at the cross. He was there. And the women. And the women. Can't help but ask parenthetically, where were the men? Mary was there. Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Mary Magdalene. The other women. Thank God for the women through the years and the cause of Christ. Only the Lord knows what would have happened to missions had it not been for women their prayers, their commitment, their concern. 
Jesus trusted John so much that he asked him to take care of his mother. On the cross, Jesus addressed John and his mother. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And the scripture says, and from that hour, he took her into his own home. John took care of Jesus' mother. You'd, you'd trust somebody like that, wouldn't you? You'd have faith in someone you would give your mother to, to be taken care of when you were leaving. That was John. He preached. He pastored. He wrote. He was the only disciple that did not suffer a martyr's death. But he was sent into exile on Patmos a little island in the Mediterranean, a prisoner of Rome. Caesar wanted him out of the way, and so he exiled him to Patmos. I want to go there someday, badly. I want to go there and stand on the top of that extinct volcano that is that island, where I imagine John spent many days looking out at that vast and endless sea, wishing to be in Ephesus or in Rome or in Jerusalem. His friend Simon Peter had been crucified with his head upside down. His brother James had been killed. His good friend Andrew, tradition says, had been boiled in oil. They'd all died. And John alone remained of the twelve, and he now an old man. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And something happened, and he wrote about it. Ninth verse, first chapter, I continue. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, because I was preaching the word of God and giving my testimony about Jesus. That's why I'm here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The son of man, a messianic statement from the Old Testament. One like the son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, 
saying, do not be offended. Do not be offended. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. To the angel, now to the second chapter, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The word angel means messenger. Probably this is a synonym for pastor, under shepherd the leader, the messenger, the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write these words. The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one he's just referred to, says this. Now, when John speaks, I want to listen. I'd like to hear John. Some servant of God speaks, I want to hear them. But when God speaks, I must hear. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he's got something to say to you. This word says something to me about the power of God. The power of our living Lord, our resurrected Christ. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. His head and his hair are white like wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His voice is like the sound of many waters. And he has in his hand the keys of death and of hell. He controls the world. Whoever has the keys has control. So listen to what this one says. This powerful one, who is also the great comforter, who comes to you, John, and who comes to me, and he comes to you with that right hand of power, and he lays it upon us, not to hurt us, but to heal us, to touch us. And he says to you tonight, he says to me tonight, now don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's not only the one of power, he is also the one of knowledge. He knows us. He knows all about us. I know your deeds, he said, second verse. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you can endure, that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's a marvelous compliment, isn't it? You've been conscientious. 
Let me parenthetically say a word about this word holds here in the, in the first verse, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the golden lampstands says this. In the language that John wrote this in, the language, the Greek language, the word holds, which he uses here, is a word which means he totally engulfs it in his hand. Now, I can hold Martha's hand, but I don't completely engulf it in my hand. We hold hands. I can hold this Bible, but I do not completely surround it. I don't envelop it in my hand. There's a different word for this kind of holding and the kind of holding that I would use to describe a coin, which I don't happen to have, but I'll, a fountain pen, which I have in my hand. Something that I can hold so tightly and can be so engulfed in my hand that you cannot see it. That's the word he uses here. He's got the whole world in his hand. And he's not just holding on for dear life. And he doesn't just have a part of us and a part of the world. He is holding it all in his hand so much so that if you look for it, you can't find it because it is immersed, it is baptized, which is what that word means, in his hand. And that's where he has you. And that's where he has me. And that's where he has all of his people. And that's why in the book of John you will read Jesus speaking that he holds his sheep in his hand and no one can pluck them out of my hand. And we are both held in the Father's hand and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. God has got his grip on us and no one can break his grip. The security of the believer is not something we invented. It's something God revealed. And it is not based upon how we feel about our assurance. It is based upon the character of God who has our security in his hand. Assurance is something we feel. Security is what we have. And we have that security because he holds us in his hand. He completely surrounds us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It helps me. Maybe it'll help you. I know your deeds. I know the good things you're doing, he says to the church in Ephesus. Now, let me say, this passage of Scripture needs to be applied two ways, I believe. It needs to be applied to us as a church, as do all of these seven letters to these seven churches. They have a message for us. All of them have something to say to us. There are many theories about the seven churches, whether they are historic, whether they are symbolic of churches through the centuries, whatever they are, God is speaking this word to us today as surely as he spoke it through John to the church in Ephesus and to the Christians long ago. And he's saying something to us as a church. And he's saying something to me as a pastor of this church. But he's also saying something to me about my life individually and about yours because the church is nothing but the combination of our corporate attitudes. What makes up the spirit of the church? Our spirits make it up. The church is nothing in the world but the combination of the people who make it up and their common spirit, their common union, their communion. That's what that word comes from, common union. What we have in common, what we have in union, what our spirits say to one another, that becomes the spirit of the church. And it must emanate from the spirit of him who is the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. And it is incumbent upon us, I as a pastor and you as a member of the church, to hear what God is saying to us through his spirit and through this word to us as a church. And he says, you're doing some good things, some marvelous things. 
I know your deeds, good works, your toil, your perseverance. You cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles. We're concerned about what's happening in our convention. We're concerned about who does this and who does that. All of that's fine, and we need to test the Spirit. We need to ask questions. We need what people believe is important. It's not casual. What people believe is very important, and we need to be serious about it. And it is right that we should be, and Jesus is here complimenting the church on being careful about their leaders and careful about what is being taught and what is being preached. Those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You have stayed with it. That's wonderful. These are marvelous accolades here. And it would be marvelous if that were true of us and all of us who claim to be followers of Christ. So he knows everything that's going on in the life of our church, all the programs, more than any of us can know about, more than, all, than any of us, even those of us close to it, can know only a very little about the many fantastic things that are being done through the life and the ministry and the ministers of this church and the lives of people. It is truly phenomenal. And that's commendable. And it's of God. And it has the blessing of his Spirit upon it. And he uses it. But that... In itself, in and of itself, by itself, is not enough. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's that word, that favorite word of John, that favorite word of Jesus, the love of God. You can do all of these good things, and that's marvelous. You can be concerned about orthodoxy. That's fine. You can be active in the life and the ministries of the church. You must be. You ought to be. You can persevere. You can be faithful. You can endure. You can do it without growing tired. That's wonderful. But if you lose love, Here, God is speaking to the church in Ephesus, words that we need to hear in here, in my heart, and in your heart, and in the life of our church. You have left your first love. Let me say just a word about this. In the Greek language, the object is before the verb. The object is before the verb to give it emphasis. It's different from ours. It gives it emphasis. And so this could be, and proper, properly should be translated, your first love you have left. Or the love you had at first is gone.
You've gotten busy. A good thing. And you're working hard. So the Lord works. And you persevere and you stay with it. And you've been faithful to it. And you've been careful to be true to God and to His Word. And you've worked hard at it. In fact, you've toiled at it. But you need to be careful. You may have forgotten that the first order of business for the Christian is now and always love. Your first love you have left. The love you had at first is gone. I'll introduce just a quick word about a term that all of us have heard. We talk about a person who's a backslider. And often in our mental image, or at least in mine, maybe not in yours, a backslider, we have, we have in our minds that a backslider is someone who turns his back on God. Someone who rejects God. Someone who repudiates God. Someone who says, I don't have anything more to do with this, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to walk away, and I'm going to walk away into the things of the world. I'm going to reject God and God's people and all that. I'm going to turn my back on it all. That is not what the word backslider means. What it means is you have slidden away backwards. You've kept your eyes on the Lord all the time. You just moved in the wrong direction. You haven't rejected Jesus. You haven't repudiated the faith. You haven't denied your confession to him. You just... preoccupied with other things, even good things, especially good things. If they were bad things, we would be convicted. They're good things, therefore we're often not convicted because we rationalize that we're doing them for the Lord, and we are, but we're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. If we do not keep alive love, your first love you have left. So what do you do? The Lord never diagnoses a problem, but that he gives a prescription. And he does it right here. I have this against you. This is wrong. Things are not right. The love you had at first has grown cold. Fifth verse. Remember. Remember. That's what we were talking about this morning when we observed the Lord's Supper, wasn't it? That's what Jesus told us to do. To remember him. Remember him. You and I can get so busy being Christians, we don't have time for Jesus. We can get so busy doing good things for the Lord, 
but we don't have any personal relationship with him. Well, the same thing can happen in the marriage. You can pay the bills and raise the children and take care of the house and talk about all the mechanics of running a life. You can have a respectable relationship, reliability, responsible to one another, a solid kind of relationship, but no love there, no passion there, no spark there, no ecstasy there. But that can be recovered in a relationship if it is lost, and it needs to be constantly reconditioned within a relationship. And how is that done? By showing affection. That's one thing. By showing it. By saying it. By planning some things together as a husband and wife that are away from the usual procedures of life, the usual pressures of life. Mark and I have worked at many things. One thing we've worked hard at is keeping alive the tender art of romance in our relationship. We go out. We still date. We make it a plan, just the two of us. Without Mike, Steve, and Lisa, when they were young, we'd get a babysitter. We'd do a lot of things together, but we'd do some things alone. And the big problem in a relationship is to begin to take each other for granted. Oh, you're faithful to each other. The relationship is solid. Good things are happening. Good marriage. Good reputation. That's fine. That's as it should be. But underneath that, and supportive of that, and the cement to that, is I love you. Say it. My Jesus, I love you. Don't take it for granted. Martha, I love you. Say, well, she knows it. She may know it. She needs to hear me say it. Jesus may know that I love him. He needs to hear me say it. woman asked her husband, do you still love me? He said, do you remember our wedding day? She said, oh, yes, I remember it well. He said, uh, do you remember on our wedding day that I told you I loved you? She said, yes. He said, if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. That's terrible, friend. I laugh at that too, but I laugh at it because that's sad. And that's a sure way to kill a relationship. It's kept alive by creating an atmosphere in which love can flourish. And that's what the Lord is telling John to tell the church. What the Lord told us this morning through that memorial supper, through the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus say? Do this to remember me. Here is that word again, and the reason we're talking about it tonight because it is a word coming through John the Apostle on the island of Patmos many years later directed to the church we are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. And the analogy goes on throughout the Scripture, and here what he is saying is, remember to say, I love you. Remember to say and to show, I love you. Remember. Repent. Now, what that word means is simply a simple word. It has such theological connotations. Martha and I, at dinner the other night, ran into a person who had been at church here, and we got to talking, and 
It was a fantastic conversation of what has happened in the, this person's life as a result of being here. We didn't go there to meet the individual. It just happened. But we got to talking about the word repent, and this individual said, you know, it was such a, it was so wonderful to me, for me to hear that repent simply means change. That's what it means, just change. Repent means you've been walking this way, I'm going to walk this way. I've been acting this way, I'm going to act this way. It doesn't mean that the lightning has to flash and the thunder roll and the earth shake beneath your feet. Just change. Sam Jones was a Methodist evangelist in my grandmother's day. I never heard Sam Jones. They say he was about six foot four or five inches tall. He was a Methodist preacher. Any of you in here old enough to remember or hear Sam Jones? My grandmother lived to be 92 and she heard all the great preachers and she heard Sam Jones preach. Sam Jones had a great big handlebar mustache, and he paraded back and forth across the platform, and he preached. Methodist. My grandparents, not this grandmother, but the other grandparents were Methodists, and of course they'd heard him. And Sam Jones would say, one of his favorite phrases was, change, quit your meanness. Just quit your meanness. Just stop acting like that. That's what the word repent means. To start acting another way. You say, well, it's hard. That's right. It's like getting out of a rut, isn't it? What all of us need to do is make some new ruts. You get in a rut, and, and the deeper it gets, the harder it is to get out. And to get out of it, it just shakes the whole automobile. But you can finally get out of it, and that can happen. That can, that, that's what can take place in repentance in transformation to get out of that old rut and get over here and start making some new ruts, some positive ruts. That's what change is. And that's what Jesus is saying through his spirit, through John to us. Remember that you've fallen away from this love and change. You don't need to do any more talking about it, really. You don't need to go to any more seminars about it, really. Just change. And do the deeds you did at first. Not feel the feelings you felt at first. Do the deeds you did at first. Your feelings will follow your will. Often we say, well, when I feel like it, I will do it. Do it and you'll feel like it. The strongest part of your personality is not your feelings, but your will, your volition. And so often we let ourselves be ruled by the weakest part of our personality, our feelings. Do it and your feelings follow. Do it. That's what he is saying here. Do the deeds you did at first. You, you, your first love you have left, how do you get it back? Do what you did at first. Get back to first. Get back to the basic. And the basic is your love for God. As I quoted in the scripture, as we began the service in prayer, Paul echoed the same marvelous statement. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Though I preach with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I, you, any of us, are sounding brass and clanging cymbals. Though I have the gift of prophecy, though I understand all wisdom and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains, if I don't love, I'm nothing. If you don't love, we're nothing. If the church doesn't love, it's nothing. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there shall be knowledge, it shall pass away. The only thing that lasts is love. Love never 
faith. What that says in two words is love life. And now abided faith, hope, love, all important. But the greatest of these is love. Remember, repent, change, and do the things you did at first. Tell him by word and deed that you love him. May God grant us the Spirit to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to the Ephesus in San Antonio. We're going to sing an invitation hymn. As we sing, I'll be here at the front. As always, as a representative of this church, as a part of this church, to greet you and to welcome you as you come to make whatever decision Christ impresses you to make. Maybe you want to come and rededication by that act to say, I want to recommit my life to Christ. I want to rededicate my life to him. I want to tell him that I love him. I want to come. You may want to kneel in prayer, some have done, and return to your seat. You may want to come just say a word to me and go back to your seat. But if you have an impression to make that recommitment of your love to Christ, do it. To come into the life of this church, to move your membership. Most important of all, to trust him. If you've never publicly confessed him as Savior, to trust him. And come to know the marvelous experience of being held by his love. We're going to sing. And as we sing, you come. Let's stand. Thank mm-hmm. you.